Hello and welcome to the second chapter. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy, a serial careerist who loves to hear from women who have changed their lives and careers after 35. For this week's big call to action, I'm inviting you to head over to Instagram and follow the second chapter. We're at the underscore second underscore chapter underscore podcast, and it would be great to see you there. Of course, we'd also love to have you following the podcast so you get notifications whenever we put out a new episode. This week, I'm talking with Pam Moore. Where to begin with Pam? She's doing a lot, and I mean a lot. She's writing for some of the biggest U.S. publications. She's helping other women respect their bodies. She's talking with some killer female athletes on her podcast. And all of this started after a career in occupational therapy. Put on your seatbelts. This is Pam Moore. I feel like there's this multi-billion dollar industry that is set up to tell us that we are not good enough. But guess what? If you want to be good enough, buy this macro counting plan, buy this exercise program, buy this, buy that, buy this. When the truth is, there is no problem. You are enough just the way you are. Hi, Pam. Thanks for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. From your website, you are speaking writing and editing, books, blog, positive body health coaching, podcast, but you started out as an occupational therapist. (laughs) That makes total sense, right? An obvious career journey. We have nothing to talk about, so we might as well just say thanks for listening. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You are an occupational therapist. So how did you get there? Because obviously you didn't stay there. There was a big change, but what's the beginning of the story? Yeah. Okay. The beginning from the start, I remember as a child being asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I remember saying things like model, ballerina. I I took ballet lessons for maybe three months total. No (laughs) self-confidence issues. (laughs) (laughs) None. No, honestly, I really wanted to wear a tutu. That was, I just, I think that's the only reason I stayed in ballet at all was the tutu. But my mother had been a teacher, but I never know. She'd always been a stay-at-home mom since before I was even born. My father owns a family business. It's a scrap metal recycling plant that's largely a male-dominated industry. I never really saw myself going into the family business. And when I thought about professions, I knew the basics. Teacher, nurse, doctor, obviously scrap metal man, because my dad, policeman, firefighter. I didn't know of that many professions. So I was good at school. I liked science. I liked people. I thought I'll be a doctor. That shouldn't be out of the realm of possibility. And then college was a big wake-up call. I had to work a lot harder to get good grades than I ever did in high school. And I was not doing well with the prerequisite classes, and I wasn't willing to work hard enough to do well. And I thought, okay, maybe a career in medicine is not for me. And I didn't really know what else was out there in terms of health professions. It was important to me that I do something that I felt like I was making a difference and helping people. And it just so happened that at my college, there was a like a conference. I don't even know what to call it. There was a little ad in the daily paper of the school. that said, are you interested in a career in occupational or physical therapy? Come to this meeting. And I thought, well, I don't know what occupational therapy is, but I'm curious. I know what physical, I thought I knew what physical therapy was. So I went to the meeting and I got really intrigued and I looked into, okay, what would I do next? And so I volunteered in and shadowed different occupational therapists in different settings And so I got a sense of what it was, or I thought I did, (laughs) and I thought it seemed interesting. At that time, I think, and still, you need a master's degree to 
pass the boards and to practice. So I was asking, what are the prerequisites? And I was looking at PT, I was looking at OT, and PT had requirements that were not interesting to me, like physics, like organic chemistry. I was like, those are the reasons I'm not going to be a doctor. OT was a little <laughs> more, <laughs> a little less heavy on the science and math. And what I liked about it was it could give you a chance to connect with people to help make their lives better and to use creative solutions to do that. But what happened, and this is very gradual over time, I I worked in many different settings, many different healthcare settings, primarily in acute care, which is say you had a stroke or you had a joint replacement or a heart attack Mm -hmm. or those types of things. I would be seeing you in the hospital. I saw people in the ICU. I'd see like old people who got dehydrated and became delirious, all kinds of people in these difficult times in their lives. And I always liked the people. I always liked the stories, but the healthcare industry was changing over. I got into the field in 2002. And by the time, I think the last time I worked in an OT setting was around 2014. It just became so much more and more about the bottom line. And I felt like there was this sort of cookie cutter recipe almost. You know, if you had, say, a post operative joint replacement patient, they would be like, post-op day one, you need to do this. Post-op day two, you need to do this. And they better be out of here by post-op day three. And I felt rushed. I often felt Mm. like, yeah, just not appreciated by my supervisors. I'm realizing like not everybody needs validation and I'm working really hard on validating myself, but I like to be appreciated for a job well done. And I wasn't getting that. And I was just, and I was just getting so burnt out. It was so emotionally exhausting also to be managing these difficult moments with these people. I loved it, but it was also heavy. And I would like, and I toyed with the idea of opening my own clinic, but I loved my coworkers. And I thought, how successful am I going to have to be to hire somebody? And then if you hire them, they're still not your friend, they're your employees. So I just couldn't wrap my head around the ins and outs of what it would be like to own my own clinic. And I wanted to do things my way and I couldn't in the hospital. Not to mention that if everything is about the bottom line, just opening your own clinic just means now you have to be the driver of the bottom line all the time, which is such a shame because you go into a profession that you want to help people and that becomes the last thing that you actually feel like you get the chance to do. It sometimes felt that way for sure. And then coupled with, let's see, I had my first child in 2012. And at that point, my I had the weirdest schedule. My main gig was working part-time as I was at this private clinic with this older woman who I consider a mentor. And this was a really niche area of occupational therapy. We were doing something called functional capacity evaluations. And our main clientele were people who were somehow involved in like the medical legal system. So for example... You have a degenerative condition and you've worked for a long, long time and you were always paying into disability insurance and all of a sudden the insurance company says, you know what, actually you're getting better and we're going to stop payment. So now they're embroiled in a legal battle and they're, oftentimes their attorney would contact us and send the, the patient to us and we would do a very intense three-day evaluation to discover what is this person's functional capacity. How much work can they do? What kind of work can they do? What kind of accommodations would need to be made? Could they do their old job? Could they do any job? And if so, what would they need in order to do it safely and sustainably, which is why we would see them for Mm -hmm. three days because someone can look great on Monday and by Tuesday they're wilting. A lot of these people just broke my heart. People whose lives were, they were so vibrant and then suddenly they got rear-ended and their life was never the same. Or people who 
slipped and fell at work and sometimes or got to know they're doing manual labor and got injured at work and they didn't have financial support. They didn't have a spouse. This was their health insurance. And now they don't have health insurance. They're injured. All of a sudden, they're living in their car with a broken back, but they can't get care because they don't have insurance. They get emergency care, but nothing ongoing, no PT, no pain management, nothing. So many people addicted to opioids. So many people that were having suicidal thoughts or getting close. It was really heartbreaking. I guess we saw a lot of resilient people who were able to basically accept the loss of their old self and completely rise from the ashes like a phoenix, so to speak. But that was more the exception to the rule. At the end of three days, I was responsible for writing like a 15 to 20 page report um, detailing everything they could or couldn't do and how. And that would often be used um, by their doctor or their attorney or something for some legal purpose. So I was doing that. So we'd we'd work like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, every other week. So that on the off weeks, the woman who owned the clinic could do court appearances and be an expert witness. But on the off weeks, I was working per diem at hospitals and nursing homes and wherever I could find hours. So this made it difficult for me to have like consistency in my life. And then I have a child in 2012 and I'm like, there's no way I can find some kind of childcare situation that's part-time, but not four hours a day, but full-time for a week and then nothing for the week off while I'm at home writing my reports. So like, it just seemed ridiculous. When you figure out the logistics of all the hours you're spending there and getting the childcare and like the money was it is like I'm barely taking home any money at the end of the day and I'm exhausted. And now my second child is born in 2014. And at that point, I had started my blog in 2007 for fun, completely for fun. I just I was really big on triathlons at the time. Seemed like every triathlete had a blog and I thought I want to have one. I want to tell my racing and training <laughs> stories. That's what it was from the start and it was just a miscellaneous collection of just anything I thought would be fun to write about. How did you get into triathlon though? Because I probably, I have to say that was about the same time that I was really big on the triathlon scene. I did not have a blog, interestingly enough. You're not I a real triathlete. <laughs> I'm not a real triathlete. I'm no, not, but how did you get into it? I think like a lot of women, I was an injured runner and I needed a cross train, right? I feel like all my good friends who do triathlons were like, I was a runner and then I couldn't run all those miles because my body was not handling it well. But that, uh, to make a very long story short, yeah, just injured runner. I was really into marathons, needed to figure out some kind of cross training when I was recovering from different running injuries. And I had a coworker at one point who did triathlons and when I met him, I realized for one thing, a triathlon doesn't have to be an Ironman. Like eventually I would do Ironmans, but in the start I was doing sprint triathlons, which are much shorter. You can complete a sprint and depending, like they vary in distance, but you can, I know you know this, I'm just telling your listeners, they can, you can even do one in like under an hour. They can be really short. I saw him with a full-time job and a family doing triathlons. And I thought, oh, wait, that could be doable. That could be something I could do, which is why I love that you're doing this podcast because I think people often don't realize that they can do something until they see somebody else doing it. And I think anyone who's like hesitating to make a change in their life, their career, particularly after a certain age, I think hearing these stories, I just think it's so wonderful you're doing this. So hopefully people will hear that and see what other folks are doing. Go, oh, maybe I could. Because that's what really planted the seed, this coworker who I'm not in touch with anymore at all. And then it became a lifestyle. Thank you for saying that. I absolutely agree with you because 
90% probably at least of the women I speak with, the biggest barrier has always been confidence. I didn't know I could do this or I wasn't sure about how I would do it. And also the triathlon thing, because you just don't think, you don't think you can do it until you do. So having, taking that first step by seeing someone. Absolutely, absolutely. I even thought that I could ever do an Ironman, except I joined a triathlon club and I met people in the club who were with full-time jobs and families and they were finding the time to do this. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's a possibility. That's something I could maybe do. So let's see. So 2007, I had just completed my first Ironman and I thought, I want a blog. I'm going to do this for fun. And it always has been fun. It's still fun. I still blog. I try to blog once a month, but By 2014, now my second child is born, and I think a big turning point for me was 2013. Wait, I'm trying to remember the exact. So my first daughter was born in 2012, and it was 2012 that I had – I co-produced a Listen to Your Mother show, which Listen to Your Mother is this event that takes place around Mother's Day in cities across America that – celebrates motherhood and it involves having anywhere from like 10 to 14 people take the stage and read an essay that they wrote about motherhood. And this includes anything about your own mother, being a mother. It's not just for women or people who identify as women. There have been men, but it's just this beautiful kind of storytelling event. And the creator of this event originally was a blogger whose blog I'd always loved and she realized, you know what, we're all telling our stories online, but what if we tell them in person? So she did it in her city and from there it grew. So the year that I came upon this opportunity to apply to bring it to my city was maybe like the third year that she had been doing it. Her name is Ann Imig. She started it all. And when I saw that the opportunity was available to apply to bring it to my city, it was on a whim. I went for it because Having a child made me really wonder, like, who am I and what am I about? What it did was it connected me to this whole community of writers. I didn't know any writers up to that point. Like I told you before when I was a kid, all I knew about was like doctor, nurse, teacher, scrap metal plant owner. Like Mm. I just – now I'm like, oh, you can be a a writer? Years prior when I'd started blogging, I asked a friend who was a successful freelance writer. I said, you know, I'm really curious actually about getting into freelance writing. What would that even look like? Where would I start? And she said, your blog is cute and it's really hard to break into freelance writing. And that really shut the conversation down. I was like mortified. My blog was cute. If that would be generous to say that my blog was cute, I could have taken some classes. There were things I could have done. I didn't know. You know, I didn't know what I didn't know. The internet in 2006 isn't what it is now or 2007, whenever that was. So now fast forward, it's 2012 and I'm connecting with this huge community of other writers. And I went to a blogging conference and met more writers. And suddenly, like we were talking about, when you see somebody else doing something, you understand, wait, this is actually possible. And it wasn't long after that, I did a race. And at the expo, there was a tent for Colorado Runner Magazine. And I forced myself to go up to the booth and I said, does this magazine take freelance submissions or pitches? I don't even know what I said. I don't even know if if I knew what a pitch was at that point. And they said, oh, here's the editor's business card. You should connect with her. And out of the blue, I just emailed her like, I think I might have emailed her three possible article ideas. 
and she liked one of them. And that for me, I might've had guest posts published on like parenting blogs or things like that before, but that was my first time that I was getting paid to write. And I felt like I won the lottery. The day the magazine came out, I schlepped my little baby. I like bundled her up. It was cold. I remember I like raced to the local running store to buy the magazine and see, even though I knew the editor was going to send me a copy, I had to see it for myself. I had to see my name in print. I was so pumped. So that was the very beginning. And then so then after my second kid was born, the question was, when is my maternity leave going to be over? Like my work kept saying, are you going to come back? I was only working a couple days a, a week maybe, but they want they wanted to know. They needed an answer. And my husband was pushing me to really explore writing. He was like, you're getting – you don't love this. The money's not that great when you factor in for childcare. You could really do something with mm. writing. And to show me, <laughs> I think to show me that he really believed in me for my 37th birthday, he surprised me with a book that I wrote. <laughs> he had collected what he thought were the best of my blog posts over the years, and he self-published a book that included them. He had it professionally copy edited. He hired a professional designer. So it looks like a legit book. It doesn't look like, oh, this is obviously self-published. It's very clean looking. He got an ISBN number. He asked writers that I'm friends with and admire for blurbs. It has actual blurbs on the back. It has a foreword <laughs> by a friend of mine. It's a legit book. And he I think that was his way of saying, I believe in you. Like you're a writer. I'm gonna start crying. It's like the best gift I've ever gotten. I'm all for us being independent-minded, decision-making women. But at the same time, that probably is one of the most romantic things I've heard, as in, don't give me roses and chocolates. And you don't even have to write poetry. But if you think my poetry is good, get it freaking made into a book for me, because that <laughs> is, that's amazing. And the confidence... Of course, the person who loves you the most is always going to say, yeah, you're really good at that. But to actually go to all that, to show you that you are as good as he thinks you are. Yeah. Kudos. Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty remarkable. So that gave me more confidence, I think, to just see myself in a different way. And so I, I think at that point, I started like submitting more parenting type essays and listicle type articles to different parenting websites and stuff. And then at that point, my kids were still really young and I didn't have really childcare. They went to very part-time preschool when they were little. Oh my God. Preschool was 7.55 to 10.40, the shortest day of all time. I would drop <laughs> off my older one and take my little one to the gym. And then I would not work out. I would sit in the cafe and write while she was in gym childcare because it's the most affordable childcare on earth. And maybe I had 90 full minutes uninterrupted by the time it was all said and done of the drop-off and then the pickup and then going back to preschool to pick up the big girl. But that was where and how I worked. I fit it in 90 minutes, four days a week. And then when my little one was finally in preschool, things came together. I started writing regularly for a parenting website that no longer exists. I was doing a little bit of content marketing for a skincare brand and also a local nonprofit for Jewish families called Mazel Together, which I'm not even sure if it exists anymore. So those three things cobbled together made me feel like hey, I have three regular gigs and I'm getting paid for all of this. This feels good. And the parenting website, I was having to come up with something for them every single week. So I had to really believe in myself that like I could come up with ideas, that I could get things done, that I could find the right experts to interview. It gave me a lot of confidence. And then from there, I feel like a breakthrough moment for me was when 
I had my first pitch accepted to the Washington Post. That was in the beginning of 2018. I wrote a reported story for the parenting section. And over time, I wrote for them a few more times. I wrote an article, which I think it went viral because I think, so I wrote this profile on a 74, I guess she was 72 at the time. She's 74 now. 74-year-old Ironman, oh, back to triathlon, this Ironman triathlete who learned to swim in her 50s. She has this remarkable story of just, again, making a big life change in later life. And she's an extremely successful triathlete. And she was about to go to the world championships in Kona. So this was a timely story. I'd had the chance to interview her. She was a wonderful human being. And it was funny because I actually pitched that profile to several publications thinking, this is a great story. And I think this is a good opportunity for me to break into a new publication. But it turned out the Washington Post was the one that wanted it after all these other places had said no. So I got it published in the Inspired Life section of the Washington Post so that was when I was 40. All these things culminated. I'm for now 42. All these things happened at once. It was my younger child's second year of preschool. So I was looking forward to like finally having all day to myself when she'd be in full day kindergarten. That was on the horizon. The parenting website that I was writing so what regularly for, that had folded. That wasn't available to me anymore. I was scraping other things together. I went on a kind of girls weekend to my best friend's 40th birthday party and She's a very successful physician. She's a leader in her organization. Her work paid for her to get her MBA. She's always been a high achiever. And our other friend who also, she's a tenured professor. She's doing what she loves. She's like making waves in the ornithology world. And then I'm like, oh, what have I been doing with my life? I'm like publishing stuff no one reads in these parenting websites. I got to get my life together. And then as I'm on the, I'm in the airport on the way home from that trip, And I got an email from this email newsletter of this woman that I've admired for years. She's offering this coaching package to help you streamline what you want to be about and help you get it out in the world. I'm reading it and I'm thinking, yes, this is for me. This is for me. This is for me. And I thought I won't be able to afford this. And I got to the bottom and I saw the price and I was like, this actually is affordable. And this is somebody that I trust and Mm. I know she can help me. And so I signed up for her coaching package and it really helped me get clear on why I wanted to be writing, what I wanted to be writing about. And I knew that it was women's health and fitness and helping other women get over these like confidence roadblocks to be who they want to be and contribute what they want to contribute. So that's happening. Meanwhile, I'd been, have you done the artist's way or read the artist's way? I have. (laughs) It's one of these things that so many people I talk to, especially creative people tend to say, you have to do the artist's way. I have, in fact, okay, this is not because I'm talking to you, but I can show you. The listeners can't see it, but yes, it is sitting (laughs) right next to me. I have started it so many times and not got past really doing all the the morning pages thing. So if you haven't, if you don't know the artist's way, obviously people love it. And I am determined because I think this is going to help me find clarity at some point yet to do it. 
please sell me on it. It changed my life. I really think it changed my life. I'm like weirdly evangelical about it. And I'm all for, hey, whatever works for you, do it. But I, this book, oh my goodness, I started it with a friend. So we were keeping each other on track. We would check in about it. That was, I would recommend if you are going to do it, try to find a friend or two. Um, my friend and I were on different paces though. I don't know who, she probably finished it first because it took me, it's a 12-week program. You're supposed to do like a chapter a week. And it, I was on track for the first five weeks, but it literally took me 10 or 11 months to do the whole book. So I would also say, don't worry about doing it perfectly. If you want to do it, and you can't get it done in 12 weeks, don't worry about it. I did all the things and it changed my life in not 12 weeks, <laughs> but I was just getting done with it. This is so nuts. I finished it a few days before my 40th birthday. And out of the blue, I got an email from the wellness editor at the Washington Post who said, I read your piece about the triathlete and I've read some of your other work, and I'm looking for a writer to help me out with fitness-based pieces like on a monthly basis. Is that something you'd be interested in? And I couldn't believe it. I'm like, this person who doesn't even know me is inviting me basically to do regular writing for a national well-respected publication? Like, I can't even. I, I couldn't speak. And that gig has opened up a lot of doors for me in terms of, I think, making me appear credible to other outlets. I've gotten content marketing opportunities from it. I've gotten a lot of, and it's also just been really fun to write these articles where I'm, oh, I feel like every article I write is like a mini course for me because I get to interview multiple experts on these different topics that I write about and learn deeply about them. And then I, you know, I have to distill it down to 1200 words, which is hard, but I love, I love the process of making something out of nothing. Okay. So two questions from that. The, first of all, Who's the triathlete that you that this article started at all? Oh yeah, her name is Bobby Greenberg. If you Google her, you'll find all kinds of stuff on her. And actually, she's coming on. I just recorded an episode for my podcast with her as a guest. She's just amazing. I have been trying, and I'm going to try harder. But I have a friend, Eddie Brocklesby. Their names are even familiar, similar. But she's like the UK equivalent. She started running in her 50s and is now the oldest. Iron Woman, oldest female Iron Woman in the UK, and is, I think at this point, 77, something along those lines, but just the most dynamic woman. So when you said that, I was like, I need to know who this person was because, yeah. or who this person is, because it definitely sounds like they have a very parallel story. They probably, I'm guessing they know each other. Yeah, she's definitely, she's definitely won her age group in <laughs> several Ironman triathlons and is a very, yeah, famous in our UK Ironman world for sure, but pretty much at this point, you know, a worldwide thing. So yeah, yeah, oh, very cool, very cool. Yeah, because Bobby will be one of very few women to ever compete in Kona in the seventy-five to seventy-nine age group. She's aging up this year. She, her birthday is in September, and the race is in October. And I think the only women to have ever competed in that age group before were um, Madonna Buder, the the nun, yes. who everyone knows, the nun. Yeah, but Bobby is going to go head to head with I think at least two other women. I want to say so, but they'll be among the top, the first five women to ever be in that age category, which is so it's cool. Amazing. It's amazing. The other thing, just when you said about credibility, and I was just like, there is something to be said about having a regular article in the Washington Post. Obviously, that gives you credibility as I would think that 
obviously you do have a health background anyway, but that's something that's difficult because there are a lot of people writing about fitness and health that really don't have credibility from a medical perspective. You still have, you've done the research, but I, I would imagine that's a hard kind of area to get into and really have people respect what you're writing yeah. because, because yeah. there's a lot behind it. Yeah. And there are so many people that call themselves or that, that are health and fitness writers, but also not every publication is as rigorous. I used to write when I wrote for that parenting website, they would just throw up anything I wrote without editing it. And that's the thing. I think when you read something on a website that you never heard of, you're not going to come home and be like, well, I read it on this website that you never heard of. So it must be true. But I think uh, like when somebody <laughs> reads something in the Washington Post, they think unless they think it's like liberal media and it's a load of BS, which some people do, there is a huge contingent of people that also say, well, I read it in the post, so it's it's legit news. And so and my editor will, she's really thorough. She is always asking for revisions. I don't think she's ever published anything I've written without mild to moderate and sometimes severe revisions or questions. And <laughs> I think that's great. I think that I want to be creating work that people can trust. That's important. But yeah, but that's opened up doors to also allow me to publish in other areas. Another thing that was cool was I segued from parenting writing to fitness writing by picking up on current events that were relevant. So for example, two years ago on Mother's Day, I believe, the New York Times published an op-ed by Alicia Montano, who is a multiple-time world champion runner and Olympian, very decorated athlete who was sponsored by Nike. And she broke her non-disclosure agreement with Nike to say, this company talks a big talk as far as supporting women. But in reality, as a mother, she said, as a sponsored athlete, they did not support me at all. If anything, she was penalized for having to take time off for pregnancy and postpartum. And that was a huge, that was a really bold move. Like she did not know what was going to happen next after she did that. What happened next was a movement started. Other women came forward. Other prominent runners came forward to say this happened to me too. And so now here I am as a parenting writer going, it's not just runners. This is many parents in the workforce, many mothers. So I pitched the Washington Post on parenting section to say this current event is hopefully starting a conversation that all pa all parents should be all mothers and parents should be having. This is important that employers recognize that we need accommodations and we need to feel valued even if we are parents. So I pitched an article along those lines. And then, oh gosh, it was a few months later when Alicia's PR people reached out to me and said, hey, Alicia's partnering with a family-friendly brand. Maybe you want to write about that. We'd be happy to connect you with Alicia or whoever you want for an interview. And I was like, what? They're coming to me, <laughs> offering me an interview with Alicia Montano? Like, oh my God. So I, again, I pitched a story to the post saying, Alicia Montano is partnering with this family-friendly brand. What does family-friendly actually mean though? What does that look like to working parents? So I did this running adjacent parenting article. And now a few months later, Alicia Montano is yet again making waves. She starts a podcast and she's really establishing herself as an advocate for working moms. So I pitched a story to Runner's World and I said, look, I've covered Alicia Montano a bunch of times and look what she's doing. Can I write a profile on her? And Runner's World said yes. 
And that was also a huge turning point. That happened a little bit before the Washington Post gig started. But I was like, oh my gosh, Runner's World? I love this magazine. I was like just so excited about my my fortune to be able to write about them and to write about something that mattered to me. And of course, you know, then later, Alicia Montano establishes a nonprofit. This was about actually a year ago, again, on Mother's Day. She establishes a nonprofit called And Mother. And I pitched a story about that to women's running and got to write about her yet again. So what was cool was having written about her a number of times, at one point, she keeps doing these amazing things. At some point, she's like pregnant with her third child. A shoe brand decided to sponsor her and another very visibly pregnant female runner. And this is like unprecedented, right? Brands don't sponsor pregnant runners, but now this brand is. So I pitched outside magazine. I'd pitched outside a number of times and never written for them. And I said, hey, look what's happening. This brand is sponsoring two pregnant runners. I'd like to write about why that matters, what that means, why does that matter? And in a heartbeat, they said, yes, please do. We saw this. This came up in our meeting and we wanted to cover it. Can you turn it in by you know tomorrow or the next day or whatever? And that w- I was like, oh my gosh, why would – they wanted to cover it anyway. I've never written for them before. They could have picked any freelancer they had worked with before or they could have picked a staff writer to do it. But I felt like they picked me because in my pitch, I – gave them at least three different samples of my works, showing them, look, I've covered Alicia Montano and her career a number of times. I know this subject inside and out. And I think that opened the door for me to write for Outside. And recently, Outside actually approached me a few months ago. They gave me an assignment. And that's like a freelance writer's dream because we waste, or should I say waste, we spend so much time writing pitches that you just never know if that idea is going to actually see the light of day. So it's really nice to be assigned something and not have to pitch it. So I'm at this different state, way different stage of my career than I was in even three years ago. I think it's interesting too, as somebody who is an athlete and a mother that you've taken these two topics. Obviously, like you said, you're writing for parenting websites and you were writing fitness because of your own fitness journeys and things like that. But then to go and be able to say, okay, these are two things I know a lot about. I've written quite a lot about them. And obviously it's really lucky that they got to coincide with a big name and everything like that as well. But yeah, to really have established yourself as there are mothers that are athletes and there are people that want to read about them and about all these things that are happening in general in women's movements when it comes to fitness and women's movements when it comes to the workplace. So yeah, your topic, your your areas of specialty are of big interest, I think, at the moment too. While you were talking about like women's movements and things like the other thing that occurred to me, I was telling you these things all coincided. The coach, the sort of aha moment of my friends are doing big things, I want to do big things, and also the the completion of the artist's way. The fourth big thing that sort of happened to me, or third, I lost count, a bunch of big things happened around my 40th birthday. I also, as far as things that I think are resonating with women, I had for many years, like my whole adult life, I was obsessed with my body as far as I always wanted to get faster. I'm a very competitive athlete. I'm not the best athlete, but I'm very competitive and I like to work hard. But I was also using that as a bit of a crutch to be like, oh, I'm this fast. I did it this quickly, which means I'm good. I think I hung a lot of my self-worth on my race results and also my body image. I was very conscious of like, how much do I weigh? What do I look like? Like, how are my clothes fitting? That was an obsession to where I just had all these food rules 
and I pretended that they were about health and fitness. And I think to some extent, of course, I want to eat vegetables. I like eating healthy. It makes me feel good to eat food that is nourishing. But I was also obsessed with, am I going to get fat if I eat this? How much do I have to run or bike or swim or whatever to justify this slice of birthday cake, this meal out, this party? And so things that are supposed to be joyful and fun were with this undercurrent of mental anxiety for me vacations, literally anything where I wasn't going to be fixing my own meal, including my husband being like, I see you're stressed out. Can I make dinner? And me thinking, oh my God, no, you're going to make pasta. Like pasta is the enemy. And so I never would have said I was like on a diet, but I was definitely in diet culture and diet mentality and foods were either good or foods were bad or, and I, and not based on how they made me feel, but based on, is it a carb? Is it, God forbid, is it a donut? Oh my God. And I had this like food metamorphosis right around my 40th birthday. I just felt like I, there had to be a different way to live. And I did not want to live like this anymore. And I just, started changing my mindset around food and started to trust my body to tell me what I needed instead of something outside of myself. I think the I don't think at that point I had read Intuitive Eating yet. Maybe I was about to read Intuitive Eating. That is a phenomenal book for anyone who is exploring a different way of being with food. But um, Yeah, my sister's actually reading it right now or just finished reading it, I think. And she as someone who She's struggled. I want to say she struggled with her weight her whole life, but that's not really fair. It's just that she's just like, I dieted because I was heavy and then I was skinny and then I got heavier because I went back and forth. And she's so passionate about the idea that she can eat in a way that's more intuitive and that her body is her body. So that it's not because she was a certain size when she was a kid. She's naturally just that size and she's not unhealthy. She eats well when she's obsessed with it and cuts out too many things. It just gets worse when the weight comes back. So she, yeah. Anyway, she's yeah, really absolutely. Absolutely. And I've never, like in college, I guess I was a little overweight, but I've never, I don't think anyone would say I was ever overweight. I wasn't. And yeah, like you said, your body's your body. Like my body's pretty much been the same size and shape no matter what I do. But now I'm just more, I can enjoy my food and I can live my life without that stress. And I, I think getting in touch with trusting my own self around food has also helped me trust myself in other areas of my life. And I think that was a catalyst. I think that makes a lot of sense too, because yeah, if you can't, if you can't escape just eating a plate of pasta is going to ruin my life. How are you going to go forward with all the other things you want to do? There is a confidence level in just saying, I love myself enough to nourish my body, but in you know ways that feel good, not just in ways that some magazine said, this will make you skinny. Exactly, exactly. And to also realize even at my smallest, which to be honest is probably just three or four pounds smaller than I am now, and I threw away my scale. But I mean, I'm five feet tall, so actually three pounds would probably change the way my pants fit a little bit. But I, all that to say, even when I was smaller or more toned or whatever, I was maybe happier in a certain way, but also so anxious because I was always wondering what's going to ruin this. What if I 
eat too much birthday cake? What if I get drunk and come home and raid the pantry, which I did often? Because that's what you, that's what I think people don't understand is when you think that something is off limits, you want it even more. And you don't realize, like, I have a lot more neutral feelings about so many different foods now that I give myself full permission to eat anything I want. Now that I really know deeply that anything I want is fair game, as long as I, if you're allergic to it, don't eat it. But, um, you know, don't like go into anaphylactic shock over it. But I, I'm not allergic to any food. So I just now it used to be like if you said the word ice cream, I wouldn't be able to stop thinking about ice cream until I got some. And now, like my family can go to ice cream, and there have been times that I'm like, you know what, you guys enjoy it. I'm just not in the mood, and that's okay. I yeah. never would have done that before. And mean that you're not in the mood, as opposed to I'm suffering watching you eat this. Exactly. One of the things that you now do is body positive coaching for other women. So obviously it's something that you've been able to share with others, but did you start that with triathlon coaching specific and then move into that area? Kind of started with running coaching. So I started doing a little running coaching and then I was like, I don't want to focus on that anymore. But then a client that I had who I'd stopped working with, she came out of the woodwork and said, hey, can we re-engage? We hadn't worked together in a couple of years. And I said, yeah, I'd love to. What do you have in mind? I, I could, I would help you. But she didn't want to focus on a goal race or a goal finish line. She simply wanted to change her relationship to movement. And I thought, wow, that's there's so much synchronicity there because that's what I'm rediscovering or have rediscovered. And I would love to help you with that. And that was really fun. Speaking in back to what drew me to OT in the first place was that creativity, getting to know somebody, figuring out what would help this person and how can I provide that. I felt like I got to do a lot of that with her because there is no, I don't think there's any cookie cutter recipe to, yeah, intuitive eating is a great book and it has some guiding principles, but how things will land on another person, what practices are going to help them. Sometimes it's just trial and error and just getting to know them. We're all so unique. And that felt really felt good to try to get to know her and develop the trust to where I could suggest something and she could try it and she could tell me honestly if it worked, if it didn't work, could we problem solve, could we try something different? And for her to just share with me everything she was going through and for me to ask questions, challenge, why did you think that? Then what? I just have these conversations that I think helped shift shift her thinking and shift her way of being with exercise and movement. So Yeah. And I love on your website too, it's because I hesitate because I think having a podcast, you get a lot of people that want to come talk as coaches and I'm all for coaches. I have a couple people that, you know, I've interviewed in the past that are coaches, people that are like life coaches, business coaches. And I think all of those people can be really helpful, but at the same time, it's every week I don't want to talk to somebody else who rediscovered themselves and became some sort of coach. But I love <laughs> on your website because when I was reading it, I was like, oh, coach. Oh, she talks about none of this Pinterest bullshit, whatever. <laughs> and it just made me think, okay, here's a person who, like myself, I like to think I call myself like a serial careerist, but you're doing all these different things and you have all these kind of inspiring things that you're doing, but you're not trying to sell some kind of bullshit. You're just like, look, this is your way of being positive in your body. This is a story about fitness and motherhood. And yeah, so that I just wanted to say that was something I really liked. What inspired you to put that message out? Oh, yeah. I appreciate you saying that for one thing. Yeah. I, I mean, I think maybe one of the reasons too that I'm not like pushing my coaching agenda so hard is that I see myself primarily as a freelance writer and body positive health coaching is 
I think it more than it, not so much to make money, but to feed my soul and help spread the message that. Wait, what did you ask me again? We got off the topic. You asked me a very specific <laughs> question, and I'm going on. What did you ask me? The thing is, I asked you a question, but prefaced it with about 10 minutes of my own. Here's what I love <laughs> about your website, and here's the story about my podcast. But what I finally got to the point of was what inspired you to say, you know what, I want to put out this message on my site that I'm not one of these bullshit blah, blah, blah. Okay. Yes. Okay. Because I want to be like an antidote to all that bullshit. I hate fake and I hate the before and after pictures. I hate diet culture. I hate that we all, I feel like there's this multi-billion dollar industry that is set up to tell us that we are not good enough. But guess what? If you want to be good enough, buy this macro counting plan, buy this exercise program, buy this, buy that, buy this. And they make money when we feel bad about ourselves. When the truth is, there is no problem. You are enough just the way you are. And I think so many of us women get, I'm sure men do too. I think men have their own issues, but I think I can speak for many women who feel like I'm not enough unless I check all these boxes. Mm-hmm. And I don't, and I think couldn't we be kinder to ourselves? Like when I think of my best friend and I think of what I love about her, it's not that she just got a promotion. It's not that she makes a lot of money. It's not how clean her house is. It's not that she finally got to her Corona roots and dyed them. It's, I like how she makes me feel. I like being with her. I like that I can be myself with her. And I think I want to spread that message of could you just be yourself? And all the things that I I do think for a long time in my life, some of the things that I did were in part to feel like I mattered, to feel like somebody would recognize what I was doing. And the older I get, the more that I'm realizing that's a bonus. It's nice if other people appreciate it, but I need to find that validation in myself. Because all the outside validation in the world, it only gets you so far. It only leaves you like looking for the next thing. If I could help like one person realize that like exercise can be so joyful, or I know exercise can be a triggering word for people, working out, movement, whatever you want to call it. If you can find something that you enjoy and that like lights you up and it's not about changing your physique, but it's about introducing more joy into your life. If I could be part of that, that would be an honor for me. What you're saying about movement, I think everybody likes something that creates movement. So whether it's dancing, whether it's taking a walk through a beautiful wooded area, whatever that is that brings some sort of joy and lets you use your body a little bit, I just think that's really important. So I think that message is amazing. And I love that you've been able to come back to helping people without the bottom line and the all that stuff that unfortunately is such a huge part of any healthcare system, but particularly the American healthcare system. Yeah. And you did say that you, that freelance writing is out of all those titles I mentioned or all those gigs at the beginning, your thing. I actually, I just launched my own podcast and that is creating so much joy for me that I'm like, oh, could I stop everything else and just be like a professional podcaster? I would have to grow by leaps and bounds to even consider even making a part-time living off of that. But um, I'm loving my, my podcast, I feel, is a blend of all these things. I'm interviewing women athletes about 
topics including body image, confidence, empowerment. I want to have real conversations with people about their struggles. You're not just that pretty outside Instagram package, but what are you really going through? What's driving all of this? What body image struggles do you have? And um, sharing those, con- having those conversations is a joy. Sharing them so far has been a joy. And I feel like in an indirect way, hopefully helping people, because as we talked about stories, I really truly believe in the power of stories to change people's lives. I absolutely agree. I love it so much. <laughs> I love people's stories. I love the real stories. I love fiction stories that people can tell. And I do think seeing somebody else do it, inspiring people is such an amazing thing. I mean, you didn't do a very good job of selling your podcast. Not that you're here <laughs> as a sales pitch, but you're like, I have a podcast. Uh, where can we find your podcast? Tell us more. <laughs> Thanks for asking, Kristen. It's called Real Fit. You can hear it on Apple Podcasts because I realize most people are using that. You can also find it on Spotify. You should be able to find it just about everywhere where people listen to podcasts. If all else fails, come to my website, which is pam-more.com. And you'll find all the episodes are there under the tab podcast. And there's all the different tabs that I said. Also, you offer, I'm really interested in it because I myself have done some cute blogging and some <laughs> and some actual professional writing, to be fair. But I want to pitch my stories. So you have something to help people out with that as well. Yeah, thanks for asking. I have an ebook. It's called Seven Pitches That Sold. Because one of my biggest barriers as a freelance writer was, what does a pitch even look like? What's a pitch? How do you write one? Seriously. It's so Seriously. mysterious. I'm not saying I have it all figured out, but in one year, I went from a 5% acceptance rate to a 33% acceptance rate. And I'm talking about mostly cold pitching, like not editors that I had a prior relationship with. And that included pitches that I sold to Runner's World, Outside, The Washington Post, places that you've heard of. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice to throw back the curtain on this mysterious art of pitching and show people what I have learned and all the things I wish I knew when I had started. So I include seven pitches and I annotate them, explaining why I think it works. Like, this is why I included this. Or I'll say in the comments, you know what, look, there's a big old typo. And you know what? It didn't ruin it for me to let people know. I don't encourage typos, but editors are human too. So I've got the pitches in there. And I also preface that with about 20 pages worth of do's and don'ts, how-tos, all what I consider best practice. And there's no hard and fast rules, but these are what has worked for me. You can also find that on my website under books. So it's called Seven Pitches That Sold. It's available for purchase on Gumroad, but I'm going to offer a discount code to the first 20 of your listeners who are interested. It'll be called Second Chapter 50. I don't think it is case sensitive. So you can just type in Second Chapter 50 in checkout and you'll get half off. I'll put that in the show notes, obviously, so people can see that as well. Yeah. So I'd love to share that with your listeners because I don't think it should be mysterious and I don't think it should be some sort of gatekeeper situation. I want to help other people. I think there's room for everybody. Personally, I always get nervous when I see somebody doing exactly the same thing as me, but they're not doing exactly the same thing as me because I don't know, I'm Kristen and they're Susie, whatever. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. No one is you. Yeah. Probably some people come on this podcast and they never want to hear my voice again. But those of you who are still listening, thank you. This is my voice and obviously the things that I have to say and the people that I want to bring on the podcast and other aspects of my life. So I I appreciate that you have a genuine interest in helping people and that you're doing it in so many different ways. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, sometimes I feel a little scattered, to be honest. Tell um, me about it. Yeah, it's very interested in a lot of things. It's just how I am. 
Yeah. Tell me about it. I definitely feel you between triathlon coaching and podcasting and production company and trying to act. People that listen to this must be like, every guest that comes on, she's, oh, we have so much in common. (laughs) (laughs) But it's because I'm trying to do too many things. (laughs) Yeah. No. Have you heard the word polymath? Polymath? Yes. Yes. That's what we are. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's there's a why, word for people like us. So we're legit. I would never ask you to choose between all the different things on the top of your website. Yes, oh, I didn't I ask would. about your quote, which I will do. Oh, yeah. You know what I would want to say to people? I would want to say that if you are scared to take the next step or make a big change, number one, that's completely normal. Mm-hmm. Number two, I I know how it feels to want to move forward and then you get bogged down. You know the what, but you get bogged down by the house. And I think that's normal. And I also think that one solution that I would want to share with people is to get really clear on why you want to do what it is that you're trying to do. And if you have a good reason that really compels you, it doesn't matter if anyone else in your life thinks it's quote unquote legitimate. If your why matters to you, just use that as your North Star and look at all the hows and goes, okay, I'm going to tick these off. I'm going to break it down to smaller tasks. I know there's a way. There's almost anything you can figure out how if you really believe in your why. And if you do believe in the why, I think it can stop your mind from spinning out in terms of what if I fail? What if I look stupid? What if I fail? What if I look stupid? But instead, what about this? What about who might I help? Who might I reach? How might I possibly make someone else's life better in some way? If you're more focused on how you can help than how you look, it's going to help free up that mental energy to actually do the thing. Absolutely. And because the way you said it, the way you said it is, who can I help? Putting it outside of yourself. So it's not this constant, do I look stupid? Do you look stupid when you're helping someone else? You can't really, your mind can't even go there. It's impossible. Exactly. And to be honest, you probably will look stupid, but also maybe not that many people are looking at you. And maybe a lot of people will say, wow, look at her doing it imperfectly. That's like perfect example. There's a podcast that I enjoy. It's called Courage Hackers. And the host has a baby. And sometimes the baby makes noise during the podcast. It's a so it's a solo show. And I think that's so inspiring and amazing. I'm not like, oh, that audio is imperfect. I am shutting this off. I came on for an inspirational podcast, not a baby whining. Instead, (laughs) I'm sitting there, look at this woman. She is making stuff happen with a baby on her lap. What is my excuse? I think it's awesome to show the world that you're not perfect because that's relatable. I don't want to see a perfect person making things happen because I think, oh, you're so perfect. Guess what? It's probably because you have a nanny and a housekeeper and a this and a that and all these things that I don't have. So I'm, of course you can do it. But when I see somebody else making it happen in a messy way, I think, oh, okay, maybe I'm messy. I could do that. Yeah, I am definitely messy. So, (laughs) (laughs) and actually your quote that you brought for me ties into that perfectly. So I'm going to ask for the quote as well. Yeah, my quote is, fear is the price of growth. And that's something I try to remember when I feel nervous about the next step or doing something new. And I think, oh gosh, this is, I think of all those fears and I remember this is a growing pain. You can't level up or you can't, as my husband says, you should repot yourself every so often as if you were a plant. You can't grow without experiencing those. Yeah, isn't that great? (laughs) I love that. 
I'm stealing that one. I just need to repot myself. I just yeah. have to do it. <laughs> yeah. So you you grow those roots so you can grow up tall, but it's right. But you got to get in that new pot. That's scary. You like the old pot probably, even if it was getting a little small for you, it's what you knew. But yeah, those growing pains that it's like you think, oh, kids wake up in the middle of the night with growing pains. Well, so do grownups. And that's okay. I, I try really hard to invite that in when I'm getting so scared. I think this is just a sign. This is a signpost showing me that I'm probably going the right way if I want to grow, which I do want to grow. I don't want to be stagnant. Just to keep growing and keep polymathing and knowing that the next pot might feel uncomfortable for a while, but we'll grow into it. So yeah. keep growing, Pam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only five feet tall. I feel like that ship has sailed, but I'm – yeah. <laughs> I feel like I've learned some things and thought a lot about my own, well, my own body image health and, you know, how I'm going to pitch my first big stories and all the rest. So thank you for doing that. Yay. Oh my God. You're welcome. That makes me happy. Please keep me posted. I want to know. I definitely shall. And again, if, if any of the listeners would like the code, I'm going to put it in the show notes, but they can look at your website and get some tips on pitching and all kinds of things. So thank you for that. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This has been so much fun, Kristen. I really enjoyed the chance to sit down and chat with you from across an ocean. Where are you even? I'm in London. Yeah, okay. <laughs> this is so great. I know. It's like magic. It is. It is like magic. When the, when the internet is cooperating, it's like magic. So thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Thanks again for listening. The second chapter is just getting started, so your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. Plus. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.